Thank you, Camille, and thank you all for being here. Uh, it is actually shaping out to be a wonderful event, and I would like to thank the organizers uh, for all the effort that went into that. Uh, the first event that I have the honor to, to introduce is a fireside, fireside chat between author Ellen Ullman and Berkeley Engineering Dean and Witty at UC co-founder Sujay King Liu. Our guest, Ellen Ullman, is a computer programmer, an essayist on technology and culture, and an author of four books, two nonfiction and two novels on the human side of technology. Her more recent book, Life in Code, A Personal History in Technology, in 2007 was named by the San Francisco Chronicle among the best books of the year. Life in Code bookends uh, her earlier work in 1997, uh, where that was uh, named Close to the Machine, Technophilia and its discontents, recounting life as a woman technologist among an almost exclusively male workforce, at the start of the global digital revolution. 20 years later, Allman reflects on digital technology's loss of innocence and reckons with all that has changed and so much that hasn't. She has earned a BA in English at Cornell University in the early 1970s and began working professionally as a programmer in 1978. Now, my colleague, professor of ECS and uh, dean of engineering, Sujay King Liu, was named in her more recent, recent post uh, this in July of past year and she's the first woman to hold that post in Berkeley, and she's, only, she's among only 60 women deans of 368 engineering schools in the U.S. She co-founded Witty at UC, and she's a very close friend of Citrus. She has been the faculty director of the Berkeley Microfabrication Laboratory for six years, overseeing its transition into the Marvell Nanofabrication Laboratory at Citrus. She's a former chair, chair of the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Sciences, and she has been known for innovations in semiconductor devices and technology, a member of the National Academy of Engineering, fellow of the National Academy of Inventors. She was recently inducted to the Silicon Valley Engineering Hall of Fame, so she has very well recognized for her, for her many accomplishments. Uh, Sujay has earned her BS, MS, and PhD degrees in electrical engineering at Stanford University in 84, 86, and 94, respectively. Now, it turns out that Sujay and Ellen hold something in common, Cornell University. Sujay was born in Ithaca, New York, where her parents, who have immigrated from Taiwan, were both uh, uh, graduate students there. And of course, uh, Ellen has graduated from there as well. So thank you for being here. It's going to be an exciting conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for that warm welcome, Costas. And thank you all who are here. Um, in person and online. And welcome, Ellen, to UC Berkeley. I think this is the first time you've visited our campus. Is that correct? No, not the first time. Or maybe I the first just, time uh, engineering. Engineering campus, yes. Excellent. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'd just like to say this. Delighted to have you here. Great so experience welcome. for me. So, you know, I learned just this morning that you actually majored in English. Yes. Um, and I, I thought it might be interesting for you to share with us how you with your background, how you came to be interested in computer programming um, and to become, you know, uh, to have to make that actually your early career as a software, a software engineer. Well, I took a path that I think sadly is not available anymore because uh, the first generation of programmers I work with were, came from a bunch of crazy people, <laughs> and smart, p crazy people, former Sufi dancers, you know, all the dissertation in Greek, uh, anthropologist uh, from Harvard. Uh, these are people who you know, just 
flock to it and learn to love it. Sorry? Oh, that's just Siri, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, AI. <laughs> okay, so I went to college at Ithaca. I went to Cornell, beautiful school. Yes. I loved having the education I did. Uh, I valued it. Um, from there, I got involved in video. There was a group uh, called the Ithaca Video Project, and I learned to use the porta packs and the cameras and editing decks. We did uh, local community things. We were on uh, Forerunner for Cable, Community Antenna. Uh, we did pieces for uh, the New York State uh, Assembly and various hmm. political activity and artistic uh, attempts. Well, and then I learned I loved crawling around the floor with cables and operating machines, and I sort of graduated from there, uh, went, left, left Ithaca. It's very important to get out of the college town, especially in a small town like that. People who linger in Ithaca long after they graduate are, well, strange, strange group. Uh, okay, good to know. It's like they haven't found their place yet, so... Uh, I left, I went to San Francisco, and uh, one day I was walking down Market Street and in the window of a Radio Shack, I miss Radio Shack, you could buy all kinds of cables and connectors, <laughs> you know, you could build a Heath kit, you know, yep, I and I days. saw a TRS-80 in the window, affectionately known as a Trash-80. And I, no reason, I just bought it because, well, it's like, is this like, you know, video? Can, can you make art with this? Can you do things that are socially interesting or just challenging, you know, fun? So I bought the thing. <laughs> and I went, oh, okay, this involves something called basic programming. And so I learned basic programming. And when I got my first, first program working, it was, <gasps> it worked. It was so exhilarating that I felt I had to keep doing this. It's very hard work but it was really good hard work. It involved creativity, um, high tolerance for failure, which is uh, important in programming, uh, drive, and the idea that you, you love and hate this machine. It's a love-hate relationship. Uh, I had to make money. I had to you know, do something, and uh, I saw ads for computer programmers everywhere. You know, it was the late 70s, early 80s. Business computing was exploding. Mm -hmm. And the need for programmers went, you know, far beyond what came out of electrical engineering schools. So I answered a couple of ads, and anyone who kind of knew what a compiler was got a job. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Uh, It went on from there. I, you know, went from programming and then went uh, to Sybase, dearly departed, uh, eaten up by... Oracle, um, you know, worked in, got a look at the, the core of uh, Unix, mm-hmm. and once you see that, uh, I, you know, went on from there. Went deeper and deeper into, you know, from the high-level stuff to uh, the, the, the networking between uh, client and server, which is what we were doing at that time, and uh, then down into the machine level. I never wrote... Uh, uh, Device drivers, oh my God, people who did that were, went insane. 
Well, because you know what they say in the manufacturer is kind of a black box interaction. They say it works like this, and hmm. it really doesn't, and you have to tweak and tweak. I guess that's the end of the story. Uh, and I went on to do it. I mean, something uh-huh. that started and kind of a whim, and can I make, you know, you know, can I have fun with this? Like, it turned into a job that I thought was just going to be a job. Mm-hmm. And then I was hooked, and I went on from there. Now, as I say, I don't, I, I think sadly that path is not open anymore. Why do you, why do you say that? Well, um, I know especially TR for trash women, especially no longer exist, of course, and they still do. They're in museums somewhere. <laughs> okay. I also had a K-Pro. That was my next machine. I see. Uh, it was called a portable. Huh? Mm. Um, and you think that maybe today it's more difficult for people to teach themselves how to be software developers, programmers? I think people can teach themselves, but at some level to succeed, you really need the degree. You need huh. to go through the engineering. I mean, if you want to work at a place where you're actually working on the algorithmic level, where you're tweaking uh, servers, uh, then I think more and more people need degrees. I don't know. I I think especially for women, it gives you confidence. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I hope that we're getting more English majors, philosophy majors, history majors especially, uh, find how few people know the history of science, the history of computing, uh, politics, and so forth. Uh, So it is my hope that more are coming. Um, But I see a lot of engineering students. Uh, Not to put down engineering students, but the, the, the blend of the technical with the sense of, you know, if you work in in the humanities, you get a sort of questioning, wider view of what you're doing. You Mm -hmm. look at it and you go, well, let's say I read this, you know, what's wrong with this? What's right with this? Oh, this is wonderful. So I think it it gives a person a a different way to look at at technology. Certainly your your training in the humanities in the social science or humanities helped you transition to become a, a, a writer, a acclaimed right. um, author, right. which is wonderful. But I was just curious, um, if you, what challenges did you encounter since there were not that many women who followed your path, and also since you didn't have a college degree in, in computing uh, or computer science, um, how did you overcome those challenges that you must have faced? Well, I don't know. I was, <laughs> you know, sometimes I, I'm surprised at what I did. You know, I went to this small company, and well, you know, you don't have a degree, and offered me this very, very small salary. I said, okay, I'll take that for three months, and if you want to keep me, this is how much you have to pay me. Now, I don't know where I got that from, but I think this is what everyone needs to do, especially women. You know, okay. I'll start with that. Six months from now, you know, you're going to pay me so much. And huh. it's sort of like you, know, you have a lease, you know, it says the step up every year. Uh, I don't know, and he hired me. And I stayed. And you were good at it, too, I, I'm sure. Yeah, I, you know, it turned out, you know, I uh-huh. was. And also, I just, I don't know, I, I go into situations where I don't know a damn thing, may, if I may say. And you know, I looked at this system, and suddenly I'm taking it apart. And people call in when it's broken. Um, 
I want to, I always talk in tangents, so I'm going to go off on one. Hopefully sure. you'll guide me back. All right. Uh, I'll try. <laughs> I, I think there are fields that are, in, that are so devalued that um, it's very important that they be valued. For instance, customer service in a technical situation. When you're dealing with technical users on the other side specifically. If you see where a system fails, that's you learn a great deal about how a system should be mm-hmm. created. You know, you really see how it's not working. And testers, you know, who are not seeing they're lower than developers. They are the people again who see where it doesn't work, who go back to the programmer and say you have a bug. No, it's the way it's supposed to work. There's no bug. And there's a great resistance. I know it's true. You know, you get these bug reports. You go like, no, I can't reproduce this bug. It's not existent. So, the, the, you know, the testers are the ones who come back and show you how it does exist. So, I, I just want to be an advocate for the levels at which people work. Um, you know, from the customer experience, as it's called now, Ikes, to... Um, Testing, uh, early developing, going deeper into algorithmic, uh, tweaking and, and devising, you know, multiprocessing system. I mean, you can go down and down and down as closer yeah. to the machine uh, as, you, as you find yourself interested. Interesting. And I know from your, your book, this is the Life and Code that came out last year, um, that you think that people who are closer to the machine tend to think of themselves as um, better yeah. or somehow worth more yeah. than the people who are farther away, yes. maybe interfacing with uh, the customers and actually who might know how to design the system better. Is that, is that, do you think, I, where do you think that bias comes, stems from? Well, uh, first of all, if you were working on something that normal human beings interact with, mm-hmm. that's not considered very, <laughs> a very important job strangely. And so the more you work only with other programmers and then machine and machine and machine, that is more highly valued. And that in general, you know, human interaction is not valued in the development of, of systems. And why let is, me come why, to... Why is that? I think it's the engineering bias, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Really? Engineering bias. Well, Okay, so um, what can we do to counteract this bias? Because clearly you don't think that it's fair. I, I just think, you know, bring more people into it. Mm-hmm. Um, about, I mean, what happens is the customer support and the front-end development and website is becoming a pink ghetto. Pink ghetto? Pink ghetto. You haven't heard that phrase, you know. Like typing, pink ghetto. Uh, secretary, pink ghetto. In other words, that it's not it's not like mm-hmm. you wear blue, you wear pink, and uh, I, I fear that that's happening, and that women are getting pushed to that end. At Google, for instance, women who work on the the web website development on the that interacts with people, even if a woman has a, a PhD that is not considered a technical track in the company. If you're not on the server side, you're not on a technical track. Hmm. So these are 
great dangers. Now, can you bring me back? That was a very long tangent. <laughs> oh, sure. Okay, but I'll leave it to members of the audience if you're interested to continue along that tangent to ask a question. Um, so how, maybe tell us about your transition to becoming an author. Nancy but, Peters at City Lights. Okay. Um, City Lights. Nancy doesn't get the glory that uh, she should at City Lights, uh, but... She received a proposal uh, for a book called Resisting the Virtual Life. This came out in 1995 to give you an idea of how advanced the thinking was that she was able to latch on to. And she got this proposal, and she said, I knew Nancy socially. She said, oh, yeah, this is all very well, these you know, professors and so on, but you've got to get that Ellen Ullman to give you something. She's a programmer. So I, the editor called me up, uh, Jim Brooke, one night and said, well, you know, we'd like you to give us something. I said, well, what? <laughs> and he said, well, about being a programmer. So I wrote something. Um, and the programming life outside, you know, outside of time, you know, living outside of time. And it was published in the book, and um, Harper's Magazine picked it up as a reading section. Nancy came back to me. She said, why don't you write us a, a book? I said, well, what? She said, well, that essay, but longer. Okay. And, I mean, there is something wonderful in the beginner's mind. And they can only have a beginner's mind once. And that's how Close to the Machine was written. I absolutely just went at it. Uh, I wrote it at various times. I got stuck. I went to Barcelona and brought a computer into a cafe, and people stared at me. I couldn't believe what that was. Uh, 1996, seven, mm. and I worked sort of everywhere, you know, hotel rooms, uh, airports, cafes, and um, I just didn't know what I was doing, but did it, mm. and got stuck various places. Um, Nancy, it had an ending. Nancy said, you know, can't stop there. <laughs> Has to end with you, not that guy. Really, she said, he leaves the thing. You can't end with him leaving, you know. It has to be about you leaving. Uh, that's how I came to do it. And mm. it took off in a really weird way. Um, it got a lot of notice. And City Lights, you know, had to keep reprinting it. And a lot that's of people wonderful. know it. That's great. Um, I was talking to Fred Turner at a City Lights gathering. He uh, teaches at Stanford. And he, he teaches close to the machine. He said, because somehow it hasn't aged, hmm. the way other books age. I'm just like... So the culture I within... I did that. <laughs> the culture within this field of computing or computer science has not changed? Well, it's certainly different. Uh, I think that you here are the ones who have to tell me. Hmm. You know, if you've read, I wrote something. I've been writing things for 22 years. Yikes. Uh, and I think it's time for the next generation to begin telling me and you and the world what's it, what it's like now. To hmm. find out ways to articulate it in, in, in a fashion that Non-technical people will actually read. Other, other technical people will read and recognize themselves. 
I mean, one of the things that happened to me, I wrote, there was a piece in here called uh, The Dumbing Down of Programming, and I got hundreds of emails from programmers who said, thank you for describing my life. I, I couldn't have you know, talked about it. So there needs to be a way, I think, that the next generation, you all, hello, uh, begin your work to articulate it. You know, take an English course. <laughs> I think English course are, are required here. <laughs> they are. Yay. I guess I think so. Go English. <laughs> And our chancellor is a professor of English, so it's very important here at Berkeley, <laughs> part of our education. Um, so it's interesting. I, I, I found it interesting that your book uh, is a collection of essays that you've written starting from 1994 through 2017. So I, I think that's an interesting piece of um, advice for the members of our audience. You can write your thoughts and collect them over time, and who knows, someday it can, they can be compiled into a timeline, you know, to capture the history of the future of AI. I guess that's the topic of the, the symposium today. So maybe my final question to you would be, um, what are, I know you have some concerns about the future of AI. Good, I mean, there's, there's a lot of good, of course, that can come out of AI. But yeah. also, there could be some dangers. And maybe if you can share your concerns with our audience before we open it up to questions. That'd be my main wonderful. concern is machine learning. Hmm. Um, you know, the original programmers write something, engineers write something, uh, design something, yeah. and then code writes code, writes code, writes code, writes code. I mean, it, it, it turns over the decision-making to the system. However that has been configured, who knows? And data sources, experiences that are surely biased wrong. I mean, we have data scientists here. Uh, and so what decisions are being made in nanoseconds? Mm-hmm. You know, I've asked people who, who do machine learning, and I say, can you tell me um, the intermediate decision-making that's going on? And Well, not at this time. Well, nobody can do this because it's all going by so fast. And so are those good decisions? Are those interesting decisions? Are they biased decisions? Are they working on a piece of data that um, is so limited that you really can't use it as representative? Also, I, I think you can't see the fortunate mistakes. Hmm. You know, mistakes are very important uh, learning tools. You know, post-it notes, failure. Guy made a glue that wouldn't stick very well. So post-it notes came into being. Uh, so, you know, just see the steps it's making. And so we don't know. I mean, what is the input? Are women's experiences in here? Are, is it mixed with men and women, uh, people of other color, nationalities? Um, even uh, there was a doctor who you know, found AI really, really helpful to diagnose uh, a medicine uh, in a certain kind of cancer. Then she came out and said, well, I don't know if that's going to work on another kind of cancer. So the data set cannot look outside of itself. So it's naturally limited. These are my concerns. Yeah. So actually, not only here at Berkeley, but at other universities, I know this um, emerging area of explainable AI is, is uh, gaining, you know, I guess, traction, momentum, because people are concerned that if humans cannot explain how an AI system arrived at the optimal solution or, um, or the, the conclusion, 
then there might be some danger, uh, dangers inherent. I'm in extremely kind of happy to hear this. Yeah. So I thought maybe it would be nice to hear what questions uh, the audience here might have for Ellen. It's quite a unique experience that she's had in her career. Um, there's a question in the back. And please wait for the mic microphone. And please introduce yourself. And if you're a student, maybe explain, uh, tell us if you're a engineering, uh, an English major <laughs> or, <laughs> or an engineering major. I don't know if there's a bias here. Please. Hi, I'm Rain. I was a history major in undergrad. Wow. I'm a master's in computer Okay. Um, my name is Rain Hoover, and um, I got my undergrad in history, you'll be happy to know, um, and then found my way into computer science um, cool. through a similar kind of, hmm, this is cool, kind of path. Um, now I'm working at a company called Primer. Um, Amy Heineke is, um, will be talking later today. That's how I'm here. Um, my question to you, Ellen, is uh, I think the phrase you used earlier was, I didn't know what I was doing, but I did it. Um, and I'm curious how, what tools you use to keep yourself going when you don't know what you're doing to convince yourself that even if you don't know, you can still do it? Scotch. <laughs> I'll get some of that and put it in my desk. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> that was an easy, quick answer. Maybe a more difficult question for Ellen. <laughs> okay, another one. Uh, who has the microphone? There's a, another question here. <laughs> I guess it's just more an observation. My name is Kate Amon. Um, I graduated with an EECS degree back in 1989 when I guess there were more, more there women. Were more women mm. And I'm distressed that the numbers are down. Um, and Ellen Ullman's observation of the bias in engineering, I saw it when, even when I was a co-op job at Intel, the, even the, the layout engineers who would actually implement the design, they were like seen as like a lower level and the attitude towards test engineers and such. I saw that too, and it just kind of baffled me, the, you know, the, the snobbery. It's like everyone's job is worth doing. You know, and it seems like the more hands-off your job is, that it, it's even better paid. So, and that goes down to just people who are actually physically making things in a low-tech level um, and doing non-tech jobs. There's just not the respect there should be, and that distresses me. So, anyways, I'm motivated to go back into AI for the diversity and for all the problems that we observe. So. Um, I'm trying to be a, my goal is re-entry, so. That's uh, and, um, yeah, so I'll, I guess I'll ask smaller questions of you later, unless you but have a question. I, maybe I can speak to this, to, just to clarify the data. At least at UC Berkeley, I know the percentages of women who majored in electrical engineering and computer sciences or computer science um, have gone, have, have been going down, and only in the recent decade have they turned around because we are doing things here to turn that around. But um, the pure numbers um, actually have grown because the number of students, as you might know, who are majoring in EECS or CS has skyrocketed. And even though the percentages might not be as high um, as like, it's still around 20%, not as high as in the 80s um, when it was more like 30%, 
the pure number of women graduating with degrees in computer science or EECS has actually grown, which is so not the bad. absolute numbers are better. And then at Intel, um, you know, being a leader in the semiconductor industry, the the previous CEO did make a statement uh, commitment to address the diversity issue, to to um, close the pay gender pay gap. They did that last year. The the atmosphere within that company specifically has improved dramatically, and it be, it's because the CEO. Uh, made it a priority. He allocated $300 million to, for programs, initiatives to really um, hold managers accountable to have programs that benefited both men and women and so on. So it is actually making progress. Like Companies like Google also are, are making efforts. So I think we're seeing that the industry does value uh, women and realizes that it must do things to counteract bias. And so I think the p picture is not so bleak, uh, but still you know, we can do more to empower men to be allies, to help women to be more resilient, like Ellen. Um, I don't know if we need uh, alcohol necessarily. Well, no, 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 no. Chocolate. I mean, that was a good be better. answer. I I really, it'd be chocolate. nice to have it. I apologize for that. <laughs> Natural chemicals. But do you have any yeah, other questions? The, the bias I observed wasn't so much sexism as just whatever role you had. Different jobs had you mm -hmm. know, different prestige. Right, that's, that's true. Yeah, that's something. What Please. really heartens me now is the activism that is coming from the engineering and programming world, uh, organ organizing uh, within the company. Google's you know, strike, uh, uh, you, know, you know, saying, I don't want to work on deadly weapons. Yeah. You know, I, questioning, questioning what's going on and actually organizing. So it's not one person, you know, someone like me and a friend going, oh, my God, this is, this is terrible, that they're organizing to ask questions about what sort of work should they be doing, what direction should the companies take, and that it's coming from inside the companies and organizing in a political and social direction is, I think, the most heartening thing I've heard in a very long time. Yeah. Any last question? Yeah, I do. Hi, I'm Terry Mead. Um, I'm an angel investor, startup advisor, and I've spent 20 years working in the life sciences space on IT-related stuff. Um, and I'm specifically focused on women's health right now. Um, so one of the things that, in terms of the bias question, and it's interesting coming from your response from an academic perspective, uh, since I focus so much on early-stage startups and see the bias associated with the 92% male VCs funding the um, the products and services of the future. And um, Ellen, your comment about the next generation. Uh, Gen X is kind of the next generation. So, you know, I see, I'm, I'm really heartened to see the number of women my age in this room because I think we have a lot of ability to influence change rather than skipping us like the CBNBC infographic skipped us recently. Um, <laughs> So what are you advocating or what are you recommending that really at the consumer level or um, maybe at the investor level to really push for innovation to have more diversity in terms of the development of these AI and ML related solutions and innovations so that we can get more dollars behind the things that have greater inclusion? So what are you seeing around that, or what are you advocating, or what would you recommend for this particular multi-generational group in this particular room to push for that? Well, underlying all of this uh, is that whenever 
there's money involved. Women are not trusted with large amounts of money. In the financial industry as well. Uh, And what, I mean, there is funding for women, but it seems that the funding goes into things that are like for clothing and cosmetics and bras and uh, not into harder uh, contributions. What do I recommend? Now, that is a hard nut to crack, to attract a group of women and men who have enough money to take up this cause. So it's the money, you know. Venture capital is, is to make money, um, lots of money. So I, that is a very tough nut to crack, to bring in women who have lost more money and can, and can join that group. Uh, now that's a problem, because women don't earn as much as men. So the whole, the whole picture, I, I, I think you can write about it. I think you can talk about it. I think you organize with other investors. I think that's the that's the way to do it. I, to just make awareness about that, especially writing about it, your own experiences, the experiences of, that you've seen on the ground. You know, particular experiences that you can, you know offer to the world in a way that they can understand internally, emotionally, socially, politically, uh, what goes on in, in that world. Yeah. I would tend to agree to assist. Um, maybe we can increase awareness of, of the bias and actually also awareness of the benefits of being more inclusive and yes. highlighting the successes of uh, women in the industry, like what they have con- contributed. So we just make them more visible. So increasing awareness in different aspects, I think, can help make the difference. And also to help women prepare uh, t- so that they have credentials to, you know, to help support their confidence and to network and to connect them with people who can be supportive. And Because you know, a, a lot of success is based on who you know, not necessarily what you know. So we really also need to advocate for women in, in you know, powerful networks as well. So there are a lot of things we can do, I think, to It has to be a multifaceted solution yeah. in my mind. All right, I think because of the limited amount of time, I'd like to close here. I, I, I'm sure Ellen would be happy to chat with people in, individually, but for now, please join me in welcome, um, thanking her. <laughs> <laughs>